Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we ask the hard questions about how our political institutions are failing and how we might fix them. So we're recording this on November 6th, 2023, about a year out from the 2024 elections, and already we are completely overwhelmed by polling about the election a year out or just a day after this splashy New York Times poll came out showing Biden has some weakness in some of the swing states newsflash. Uh, I guess you needed a poll to tell you that. And there's going to be so much punditry around the polling. So there are a lot of people who say a lot of things about polling. Uh, But one of the few that I always turn to for a big picture view of what's happening that goes beyond the day-to-day and really thinks about the the larger scope of politics is Michael Podhorzer. Michael is a man who's been involved in a lot of data for a lot of of years. He was the political director of the AFL-CIO for a while. Now he's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He is a founder of the Analyst Institute, and the Polling Consortium, and also helped to, to found and has served as the co-chair of Catalyst. So this is a guy who knows data and knows campaign data like, like nobody else. And you can read him on the Substack. He publishes Weekend Reading, which is you know, a must read. So welcome to the pod. Thank you. It's really good to be here. Really, you know, back at you. So much the work you do, Doom Loop, others to bring to people how much you know the framework we do our politics in matters when almost all the conversation just takes for granted you know that that's just a natural way that a society would work well thank you thank you for that so you have a lot of smart criticisms about how much mainstream punditry and polling works essentially and we'll circle back to that throughout the conversation but i want to start with how you see politics differently than most analysts. One theme that really emerges for me in reading your work over the years is that you pay really a lot of attention to three factors that I think often get overlooked and lost in national polling, essentially place, community, and political organization. Is that a fair reading of your... Yeah, yeah, no, that's very, that's spot on. Yeah. So I think it's incredibly important and has some real stakes in how we think about politics. Because if we take politics out of place in community or an organization, it leads us to think about politics in a way that we treat these voters like they're some atomized neoliberal consumers floating in, in space who will somehow just all respond to the same national messages and like somehow we can segment these people by these crude demographic categories and get the right message to the right people and win elections. But I think that this way of thinking about politics, about values and belonging and networks, is that you wind up seeing things very differently. So take us inside a little bit of the Podhorzer worldview here and how you segment and think about the electorate differently than uh, most people who analyze political polls and data. Sure. And I think what's very interesting is it's that until relatively recently, it's my impression, I'm, because I'm not from an academic background, that there's a rich tradition of political economy, which basically looks at all those things you just said, that tries to understand this as a complete ecosystem. And now we have a sort of ecosystem built out of only the things that are visible inside a survey, which is, as you say, just flattens people down to neoliberal consumers. And it just doesn't work that way. And I think for listeners who don't live in Washington, D.C. or have moved around the country, that should step back, be kind of ridiculous that, you know, how much even each of us is a product of where we grew up and the people we knew and the people we're with. And that's a dynamic process. But the other really important thing that can't be seen in a survey is that, you know, from the beginning of time and in all places, politics is about a competition for power among people and organized interests in the society. 
and they're the original movers in politics. And when you don't look at them, which you can't inside a survey, it's like the people reviewing movies, not knowing there are producers and casting directors and writers and just trying to explain it in terms of the actors doing everything. And it's that that shallow and understanding of what's happening in this country that I think is really contributes to why what gets called the polarization crisis is so severe. Right. So, I mean, it's we, we don't think about who's giving us the choices. We just think we just take those choices as for granted. And I, I mean, in political science, there was a much older tradition really coming out of Columbia University in the 1950s that thinks about politics in terms of groups and as a kind of sociology approach to politics. And I think as the amount of data and the tools for analyzing data and the assumptions about human behavior shifted in the 1970s, political science moved much more in a direction of treating voters as these individual data points that you can plug into a model without really that that sociological context and the study of interest groups has always kind of been on the margins of political science. So I'm, I'm glad that you think that way about politics, because I also think that way, too. I mean, I, I cut my teeth as somebody who was thinking about lobbying and interest groups as a political scientist and since moved into electoral systems. So obviously, I think a lot about how the agenda gets shaped. And I think with so much of that becomes invisible, especially in polling. Absolutely. And I think that really undermines democracy, right, in a lot of ways, because for a long time, democracy wasn't understood as just elections, but the things that happen in between them. And that democracy depends on active citizens working together, not just like showing up to vote uh, every year. Right. And there's a legislative process and there's a question of why certain things get voted on and what goes into that legislation that becomes totally invisible. But I want to move this conversation along because you tend to think of different places as having different dynamics, right? I mean, in some crude way, you know, that there's something going on in red states and something going on in blue states and something going on in purple states. And by putting all these types of states together at a national level, we're really missing a bunch of distinct dynamics that are not necessarily the arithmetic mean of, of these different processes, essentially. So uh, give us an understanding of how you see these different processes playing out differently in different political places. Sure. No, that's really, really so important. And, and the irony, of course, is that when you think about how many national polls you read in the media or seen and all of the different things that get said, right? The really incredible irony is that there are very few countries that have as rigidly a federalist structure as we do. There's literally no national election for editing where the, the candidate that gets the most votes automatically wins. And yet it's just taken for granted that all you need to know is what a thousand or two thousand people think nationally and it's not there. The way I think about, I'll circle back to purple states, but the way I think about red and blue states is it was baked in at the founding, right? And the geography hasn't really changed much, right? You had what I sometimes call a declaration of independence part of America and a constitution part of America. And they are, I think, pretty much irreconcilable. Wait, so say, unpack that a little bit. Yeah, that the set of values that the Southern colonies, you know, most notoriously and uh, terribly in terms of human property, right, basically saw government in a very theocratic way. It was, there was no question about what the law ought to be. And the purpose of government was to protect property and make sure people followed that natural law. Two, you know, or never completely fulfilling it. In the other states, there were colonies and then states, there was a view that 
there was a kind of liberal way of approaching it that people working together would figure out what the best laws were, what the best ways to have greater prosperity together. And of course, there are lots of problems and lots of things they wrong, but it was very fundamental difference. There's one that's kind of a theocratic and another that's a kind of liberal democracy. But the things dividing them are even deeper and more varied, right? Because the Southern states from then until now have been based on extractive industries and a low-wage economy. The Northern states have been about more innovation, about more industrial capital and finance. And those are just two different economic systems between the two, especially now the Red states are extraordinarily rural. They're a rural country. You know, more people live in rural areas than cities of more than a million in Red America. Five times as many people live in cities of a million or more than live in rural areas in Blue America, right? They're just two different countries that the Constitution staples together and expects to figure out how to live well together. And for the most of American history, it hasn't worked. Purple states, I think, are the ones where there's a substantial enough element of both sides that are at about 50-50 in the state, and they're in constant conflict because everything becomes existential. So one of the big stories of American politics over the last several decades and something that you've paid close attention to is the way in which the parties have altered their geographical coalitions and such that you know, 60 years ago, there were these two countries, but they were broadly represented in different ways within both of the parties. And now that's just not the case. And you know, another thing that, that you've looked at closely is not just the cultural aspects of this realignment, but also the economic aspects of this realignment. It was something that you were starting to get at in the previous comments about places having different industries. But I, I wonder if you could kind of take us through the transformations that you see and the ways in which both the culture and the economic aspects of place have shaped the changing coalitions over the last several decades. Sure. So I think that because uh, even beyond polling, our narratives sort of begin as if the parties themselves are independent actors, right? We think of how you phrase the question, how did their coalitions change, right? I think in terms of these big geographic questions, I think it's more that the people in more or less the red states now decided to join a different party, right? That like, the values of the people living there haven't changed, just like what jerseys they're wearing, right? And- But that has that has consequences for the parties. Yeah. Absolutely. And, but the, to my very schematic view is that coming out of reconstruction and the, the end of it, there was a sort of, settlement where the South was allowed to be Jim Crow and the South would sort of reintegrate. And as long as that was going on, it was possible for things to be worked out within the Democratic Party at the time. But going at, uh, especially coming out of the late 30s, that coalition, that the fact that it was a combination of those Jim Crow interests and northern urban labor interests were just and civil rights were just irreconcilable and so it just sort of burst after that momentary ability to be in the same place just burst apart again and returned to sort of the natural condition of america right if you look at the republican caucus today and the democratic caucus in 1928 the percentage of representatives in the Republican now Democratic caucus then that came from the Confederate states or the red states is exact, all, just about exactly the same. They're a regional party. We have regional parties because we're a federalism society. And 
they're big land masses that just have different economies and histories and you know all of those things but there have been some considerable demographic shifts in 96 years or 95 five years or i mean i mean there's been a lot of migration from rural to urban there's been a, a great migration of black voters there's been immigration uh, there, there's been fundamental changes in the economy. So I think of there being large patterns, but in some ways, I'm I, not, not sure I, I see that there being a natural state it feels very fatalistic to me. Well, I think that what I mean by that is that I'll sort of turn that question on its head, right? If America was America and not the United States, not really giving the states as much autonomy and sovereignty as they have. After 250 years, you would think there wouldn't be any regional differences in, on the scale that we have right now. You would think there'd be a clear American you know, type and values and all of that sort of thing. And it just isn't the case. Because even though the migrations that you're talking have had profound impact. The ability of the institutions that actually are located in those places to maintain leverage over state legislatures and other local units of government are a real break on going to convergence, right? And so I'm glad you sort of talked about fatalists. I don't think this is fatal. I don't think it has to be this way. This isn't, uh, that's not where I'm coming from. I think that, you know, in many ways, the really important point that moved the country towards a kind of convergence was the civil rights legislation in the 1960s, which opened the Jim Crow states to actual electoral competition. And then suddenly you saw the you know, Lawton Childs, uh, Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter, suddenly you had actual small D democratic competition and the South starting in terms of its economic gains and all of that, and the North converging pretty rapidly. And you saw both parties can, in Congress consisting of representatives from all over the country. They were both in some ways still national parties. But then really, I would like, again, think in grand schematic terms, look at really the end of the Cold War as a key moment in everything starting to race back towards the regional divide. But for the story I'm telling, it, it really is a handicap not to have visuals. But if you take the same geographic area, the states that were the Confederacy and red states then and do the same thing now, from the end of Reconstruction until 1928, in almost every presidential election, each region voted for the opposite presidential candidate by more than 10 points. And then that just stopped happening with the Depression and the World War II and the Cold War. And in the last six elections, we've gone back there in a way that looks exactly identical to what it was before the depression where the last three elections, the blue states voted for uh, Biden, Clinton, and Obama by two dozen points, and for Trump, Trump, and Romney by a dozen points in the red states. Right, Each part of the country has a diametrically different consensus around how they want to live. Yeah. And I mean, that point about competition is really important in that there was a narrow period of a few decades in which the South really was two-party competitive. And you know, what's fascinating is that in 1928, of course, the South was all was all Democratic and the North was all Republican. And what, what you've had is a complete flip in the regional strength of the parties, but the values carry on. So I want to pivot off this point about declining competition in the the South and I mean, the country writ large and move us towards this recent piece that you wrote on your Substack that's gotten a lot of attention called Hiding in Plain Sight, the Sources of MAGA Madness and Congressional Cacistocracy. Is that, am I pronouncing that right? 
Uh, it's not it's not a word you hear pronounced a lot. Uh, the the subhead is how white Christian political might made the Republican Party hard right. So first, cacistocracy. What is that? Yeah. So that's a Cold War word that was in use to describe the Soviet Union. And the idea of a cacistocracy is government by the least competent. So and this is like late late Soviet Union when it's a bunch of like old and people who have no, no clue no, what's it going began on. during Stalin. The but the idea that the only way to literally stay alive in the bureaucracy was to go along with whatever the ideology was, and that if you were too competent, then you were in real danger. That what was valued was purity and not competence, and. So as different Soviet leaders were coming up that, you know, they would just get show trials, all those things if they seemed to be too big. But the idea, it's a really good one because it really obviously describes the Trump administration where they could not keep anybody who was competent, right? Because that wasn't what they were valuing. What they were valuing was loyalty to Trump. And I say cacistocracy for the House because the what I describe is how beginning in 2010, the evangelical churches, but it's more than that, it's also the LDS and others who are committed to some form of you know religious and state joining together, that famously, and uh, probably if the people are listening to this, there's a story they know that in the 70s, after being pretty much apolitical, the religious right formed and became allied with the Republican Party. And until maybe 2008, but definitely 2010, those groups were satisfied voting for establishment, business-oriented Republicans in general elections. And in 2010, that bargain snapped. We think the birth of the Tea Party is very much, and it was, you know, against Obama, but it was also against McCain and the establishment Republicans who were willing to acknowledge he was legitimate, you know, and actually were never going to deliver on the promises that had been made to them to make this a more religious country. And so starting with the 2010 election, their political program was replacing insufficiently uh, committed to sort of a religious agenda Republicans. And so in those states, in those places, incumbent Republicans who were not towing that line were defeated in primaries or became so disillusioned they retired and were replaced by it. You did this really good substack yourself a couple, I think it's two ago, where you had that great graph of how the uncharted territory and how in this period the Republicans have just sort of gone off the edge. And if you deconstruct that using the same thing you did, nominate score, what you see is it's a combination of losing seats in sort of blue America, right? So that you're raising the average just because they're not there, but also that every time a someone lost the primary, they were replaced by someone more conservative. Every time there was an open seat, the new candidate was more conservative. And now 85% of the House caucus was elected in 2010 or later. And that's the arithmetic that gets you off the charts. Right. And I want to add some, some substance to this when we're talking about white Christian nationalism, which is a, a key concept in this piece that, that you put out. And you know, I think it's also that there's a qualitative aspect to what's going on that, that is not well captured in these nominate scores. I think the, the nominate scores are a good first approximation of polarization. And you know, to the extent that you want a kind of quick first approximation of what's going on, I think they hold up pretty well, but they don't they don't capture the substance. Like white Christian nationalism is a vision that show up a little bit on nominate scores, but it's also a style and approach to politics. And I think it's a term that a lot of people don't really understand. And then we throw around evangelical when evangelicalism is this very diverse movement that has lots of features and disagreements within it. So I think it's really important here because you have a story about political organization 
that is more precise than a, the, these sort of blanket labels that we throw around. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree that the nominee misses how do you stop having elections on an ideological scale, right? Um, the right, it wasn't like built for that. But what I try to do is take metrics or data that people who might disagree with a claim I make and use their their metric, right, as a expedient, right, to not to, Is there to anything use. that comes to mind as an example? Yeah, no, there? the nominate, right? I mean, that. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. Okay. Right, that, that basically, right, I'm not like coming up with my own more precise way of saying how right wing they are or something, right? It don't have to answer questions about that premise. But it, you're absolutely right. It misses like some of these folks who are, you know, you would think would be even bigger than the range. And the way I use evangelical in the piece, is really important because it's different than the way that it's often used. Because my contention isn't that the mere presence of evangelical density means that you're going to get these kinds of representatives. Instead, what I'm doing is saying there's a pretty good association between where there are lots of evangelical church members, megachurches, and so on, and an organized Christian political movement, right? And so it's not like saying that in this kind of natural market-oriented way, you get a lot of evangelicals in a place and you get this. Rather, it's that when you have a lot of evangelicals in the place, a uh, religious organizing effort is going to have a lot of success, especially because when these candidates are beating incumbents in primaries, they're only needing 50, 55,000 votes. And when you have a ready population that's going to church with each other every week and so on, that is going to vote 80, 20 or better for your candidate, that pretty much gives you a hack on the primary. And because the districts are almost all red or blue on the Republican caucus in Congress. But is this, how much of this do you think is a story about the primaries per se, I mean, it seems to me that, that they would have taken over the Republican Party organization in these places if there weren't primaries, but maybe the primaries makes it easier for them to do it. Yeah. Oh, well, I think that there's almost no place where either a Democratic or Republican Party organization actually means anything anymore. Right. And right. It, it's basically almost all politicians who want to run for office go directly to the local interest groups that are associated with the party. But the party is really, really weak locally. Right, right. By having weak local parties, parties have ceded uh, essentially the, the functions of party to the, right. the local interest groups, which exactly. is a, a consequence of having extremely weak and hollow parties right. in the U.S. Yeah. So that's an important part of the story as well. Right. And before, you know, the, in this up through the 60s, say, the, it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, that's why you had so little competition. Parties could do a much better job of sorting it out. Right. So now a lot of these positions that these white Christian nationalist groups advance are extremely unpopular as political issues. So there's sort of a, a paradox or a strange, I don't know if it's a paradox, but it's a strange thing going on that these issue positions that would poll extremely poorly on their own somehow are overrepresented in Congress. So how how unusual do you see this and how how problematic and, and is this just a function of of organized interests always having that that advantage of intensity of preference or is this something else? It's both. It's it's that, but what your work goes to, which is it depends on the rules, right? We have rules, you know, first past the post, primaries, gerrymandering, all of those things that give organized interests that have, you know, clustered power the ability to be extremely small relative to the whole population, even in their um, state, whatever, and yet still have an iron grip on that. 
right? That's why this is a do move, right? Because right. they they are using the system as it is, right? So to me, a great example is on abortion, right? Where you have an extremely unpopular vision for the members of Congress we're talking about in the state legislators in those states. And yet it doesn't matter, right? You get the repeal of Roe and those legislatures, even though they see that everybody's against it, make the abortion laws even more draconian, right? It's because they really have the lock on that candidate selection part, and there's no way to challenge it. And one way, and maybe you've written about this too, but one way of just seeing how the rules matter in ways that are not just like, oh, in an academic's head, right, is look at Michigan and the switch from drawing their districts, the state legislature to an independent commission, right? In the space of one cycle, it went from being an impenetrable Republican majority in both chambers to a reasonable Democratic majority that's already passed major laws to overturn what they were doing. Meanwhile, in Wisconsin, they're not the case, right? I mean, it's like it's literally like when interest groups have what it takes that matches the rules, they can like go really far. Right. And that point about clustered power is really important. Now, I, I think there are some folks on the political right, and I, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to to criticism that says, well, you know, sure, you can say this about the, you know, the Christian groups on the right, but, you know, Democrats are, are clustered in these socially liberal enclaves where all these college-educated elite cosmopolitan liberals have a similar lock on the Democratic Party and are pulling the Democratic Party in an opposite direction on this cosmopolitan, traditionalist, cultural, secular line, or cultural, uh, cultural secular versus traditionalist, religious line. Yeah, that, I'm glad that you, you sort of raised that because it was, there was something you said earlier that I wanted to come back to about electoral competition and the fact that there's not much partisan competition in either red states or blue states is the same thing, right? In the red states, there's an absence of partisan political competition because of the actions of Republicans in those states and changing the rules in all sorts of ways. In the Blue state, there's an absence of political competition because the Republican Party's essentially committed suicide in who they nominate, right? But when there's a Larry Hogan or a Charlie Baker, right, they can win, right? And I think that really what the Republican Party basically abandoning the blue states in terms of credible competition has created something very confusing, which is that in a two-party country, you have what used to be the old liberal Republicans in the North having to wear blue jerseys too. And if you think about it that way, you see there's really robust, small-D democratic competition still thriving. Think Eric Adams, think uh, you know the Chicago mayor's race, right? There's Sometimes the more progressive candidate wins, sometimes the more conservative candidate wins. But it looks like a democracy, except that everybody's wearing the same blue jersey. In red states, you don't see anything like that at all. You don't see a sort of more moderate liberal set of folks who used to be the Southern Democrats wearing red shirts. They're just gone, right? So is that because the conservative formerly conservative Democrats just became equally conservative Republican and the Democratic Party in a lot of Southern states is just basically the Black Party? I think mean, it's because of the everything, starting with Shelby and Rousseau and the willingness of the legislatures to just so change the rules to recreate one party rule. But I mean, isn't you can, you, couldn't you say the same thing about Illinois or... New York or a bunch of, of Democratic states? I think in the Democratic states, you see, you know, 
Like, I don't want to never want to seem like I'm overly like gung ho and cheerleading because I have lots of problems with blue states. But I think that over this period of time since 2010, it has become easier for people to vote in blue states. And I mean, in terms of the districting. Oh, in terms of districting, I think that it's a complicated picture. I think there are two different things that you can draw lines for that have different effects. You have one, which is try to maximize the number of seats your party has in the state legislature or in Congress. And that's traditionally what's happened. What's happened more recent, especially in the 2010 and the 2020, is that where Republicans have control, they've opted for even deeper red districts at the expense of trying to maximize Republican seats. And whereas I think in Blue America, and you look at the New York map, they're still trying to go for more Democratic seats overall. Both of them are terrible, but, I'm, but I think it has a trade-off between maximizing the number of seats you can win in a general election and maximizing the number of seats that are guaranteed to be extreme left or right. Right. And the more safe seats you have, the more the party tends to pull to the extreme. So I I want to move us to a little bit towards 2024, but I want to stop at, at 2022 and the 2022 midterm elections. And you've described something what you call the anti-MAGA majority, which is not really a single group, but really a co- collection of different segments of the electorate who are motivated and, and inspired in, in different ways. But you know, particularly this core fulcrum group that really does respond differently based on the battle. So talk us through what you observed in 2022 and 2020, even going back to 2020, and, and where just describe this group and, and how it has operated in different places differently. Sure. And maybe a, a good way to do this is with a little example. So Wisconsin has been like one of the pivotal tipping point states and characteristic of how the electoral colleges went. And if I say a white non-college voter, then probably everybody listening to this thinks of a burly guy in a diner in Wisconsin somewhere, and that the challenge for Democrats is to somehow figure out how to get this guy back from Trump. And that's a problem with how we think about politics. Because if you pull the camera back, you see, you know, Charlene, the server, pouring coffee. She's a white non-college voter too. And she is really upset about Dobbs. And then you pull it back a little bit more and you see three or four 20-somethings who haven't had a real full-time reliable job and really don't think Biden or anybody in politics can do anything for them. But when they hear about what Trump or MAGA wants to do, even some of them end up voting. Right? And in 2016, right, Trump wins because pretty much only the burly guy shows up. In every election after that, Democrats win because the rest of the diner shows up. And that's the anti-MAGA majority in those states. It's the combination of folks who have always been Democrats But another set of people, definitely more young, who really weren't voting in 2016, but now are afraid of losing their freedom enough to come out. And because we keep thinking about the election returns in like 5248, we don't realize how much it matters, how many people show up to vote. And in these post-2016 elections, we keep having record turnout. And that's because the choices are really clear. And when they are, there is a majority of Americans who don't want. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. And so on. And so I don't think there's any positive vision that unites this coalition, which is a real problem for Democrats because it's not a coalition for Democrats. But it is a proven robust to be against where. MAGA wants to go. Yeah. And and in the, the 2022 midterms, you noted that 
in the states where MAGA was on the ballot, MAGA lost, essentially. But in other other states where MAGA wasn't on the ballot, Republicans made some gains. So it is the explanation for that, that the other part of the diner showed up in the states where MAGA was on the ballot and not yeah, that, that, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it, it, it's so straightforward. In Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, uh, Nevada, turnout was as high as it was in 2018 when midterm turnout records were shattered. And even though it was a you know, president's party midterm, Shapiro, Whitmer, Evers, all won by more in a red year than they had won four years before in a blue year. Because it is in those places, it's not just about party. It's about what's at stake. And it's just become so glaringly clear, especially for the people who live in ground zero states, right? In the rest of the country, Republicans did pretty much exactly as well as was predicted for a normal midterm, right? Different forces were at work. Right. So now we're a year out from 2024, and there's a lot of polling that shows tremendous weakness for Biden. Right? I mean, it's, it's not that people were ever all that excited about Biden, but I think in 2020, he was still kind of generic Democrat to a lot of voters, and all the focus was on Trump, and people just wanted to end the craziness. Now, Trump is still in the news, but it seems like a lot of these rest of the diner voters have really soured on Biden. And so th there's a lot of, again, talking after this splashy New York Times poll showing Biden with some real weakness among younger voters. I mean, some some almost hard to believe poll numbers that he's basically tied with Trump among younger voters. I'm not sure. I suspect that has a lot to do with response rate more than the actual state of play. But nonetheless, how are you thinking about this anti-MAGA coalition going into 2024, particularly in these key swing states? Yeah. So I think that to me is kind of odd is that we know that like popular support for almost every institution in this country keeps plummeting and people are disappointed. You have been disappointed with the direction of the country seemingly forever, right? And yet we're surprised that Biden doesn't have good approval ratings, right? I mean, the people... The problem is not who's our president. The problem is that the institutions and the social system is not delivering for people anymore. Well, I I mean, I think some people say they're surprised because uh, at, at an aggregate level, the economy looks like it's doing well, although maybe not as much as at an individual level. But I think that that's another important thing to sort of pull out and really gets to lots of the problems where coming out of World War II, right, there was a such an explosion of actually shared prosperity in this country, pretty much more than ever happened in history. And even the worst part of it, which was it wasn't shared equally with African Americans, even that started to change. Um, that people viewed democracy and the institutions with pride and people were conditioned to do that in the competition against communism and all that. And then you hit the 70s and beyond, and that system is no longer delivering a certain future for your kids that's better than yours, that your job is secure and all those things. In that earlier period, when academics are trying to figure out you know, how to understand people's sense of their well-being, Tracking, say, GDP growth or unemployment made sense because it's still a heuristic because if prosperity shared, it's going to move up or down with you. Now it's just completely disconnected, right? So the GDP increases and, you know, it increases, rising tide raises the yachts, but not the boats, right? And then you wonder sort of why that. The other thing that's really missing from the data that we use to scold people for not appreciating the economy enough is how precarious it's become. And 
if you're asking someone if it's worth a 10% pay increase, but with it comes not knowing what your hours are going to be every week, whether you're going to have a job in six months, and that there's no actually room for rising, then no, they're not going to feel happy that like this year their income went up a little bit. And that's the condition for most Americans. Right. And real GDP is actually down in a lot of states uh, when you account for inflation, which is, I think, a challenge. But I mean, I think it's an important point that that share of the electorate, and, you know, I think this diner metaphor is useful. Like the burly older person who's getting the coffee there, like he probably came up of an age when he when he got a pension. And the waitress definitely doesn't have a pension. And she doesn't know what her hours are going to be a few weeks from now. The, the, the younger people don't know if they're going to have a, a job. They, they don't even know if they're going to be able to buy a house or pay back their college loans if they went to college, which maybe they didn't, or maybe they started and then dropped out. So, right, I mean, I think you're getting at an important point here that there is this way in which a lot of folks in the sort of comfortable Washington, D.C. world say, well, the economy's great and I'm doing great. And like, why aren't people appreciating it? And, you know, and it's the people who Democrats need most of all who in this, you know, group of people who didn't vote in the past and maybe are voted in the last few elections that are feeling most like, well, you know, what, what's the point? So it seems like there's this kind of tension that's happening within this this fulcrum group of the electorate writ large, which is on the one hand, like you remind people how terrible and how crazy Donald Trump is and what a, what a threat he is to a lot of fundamental values. And people are like, yeah, I don't want that guy. But then people quickly default back to, well, you know, my, my life kind of stinks. So like, well, you know, I, I want to vote for something different. And, you know, at least Trump is trying to blow up the system. And maybe that's not so bad. Or maybe I should just or, or more likely, like, what's the point of even voting? Or why don't I vote for somebody who's really trying to throw up the system? Like uh, RFK Jr., who I think has a, a distinctly populist appeal that I'm not sure a lot of pundits have fully grokked. Yeah. So one thing on this that you mentioned or that probably no one listening caught in terms of my background is, you know, as political director of the FLCAO and the labor movement for 30 years and before that in local organizing. And believe me, these days, most people have long ago stopped believing that politicians can do anything to improve their lives, right? That's just foolishness. What they do believe, though, is that they can make their lives worse, especially after four years of Trump. Those people say, you know, we really do need to vote because it can get worse. And that is, you know, that's the product of decades of, you know, collapse of civil society and democracy. Yeah, well, that, that's pretty, pretty bleak. <laughs> but it's what it's like out there, right? When yeah. you're talking about people like, you know, in the DC metro area who just like don't get out there and see what people's lives are like. Yeah. So I want to kind of bring this to a close with what are the things that you are going to be looking at closely in the next 12 months? And what are the things that you think others who, who want to understand and think intelligently about all of this polling that's just going to come at us rapid fire over the next 12 months should know and how should how how yeah, like what's the wisdom? <laughs> yeah, the wisdom is like don't bother looking at the polls at all, right? And the kind that we hear about, like the one that was in New York Times for media polling, because it really doesn't give you anything more than knowing what you already know, which is it's going to be close, it's going to be in those six states, and it's going to depend on at the margin who gets more people out right that's every election you know since 2016 has been that election right and so there's nothing that polling can tell us that gives us more precision than that that you can be confident in the one thing that we would like panic us if we saw or encourage us is if we start seeing people who voted for Biden or Trump deciding to defect to the other side in great numbers. But 
The problem is that because the polls are reported as just re-asking who you're going to vote for next time, rather than in the sort of banner point of who did you vote last time, you don't see that very few people have actually been switching. And if that's the case, it just comes down to who, you know, there are more Biden voters than Trump voters. And that's sort of what it comes down to. The other thing is that until at least March, when the trials start, nothing is going to matter at all. And then the trials could, because I think we could see the actual change if he's convicted. So at least in like groups and some sort of ways we're researching it, I think there's a sliver of America that will treat a conviction by a jury of his peers differently than the Justice Department indicting him, where they can still think this is just political BS. So that could change that we have another um, session of the Supreme Court where they could alienate and activate voters some more. So I'd be looking at those kinds of things. Right. So in some ways, what Democrats should be doing is, or be really both parties should be doing, is just focusing all their resources on building good get-out-the-vote efforts now. And all, all these conversations about the right message or the or what's in the news now are a lot of wasted energy. Totally. All right. Well, you heard it here first. Turnout matters. Get people out to vote, and don't. don't but it don't, doesn't. Don't, but you can't even do it till October. So relax. Right. Yeah. But start building. Yeah. Start. Start building now. Yeah. Well. Well. Thank you for this conversation, Mike. Oh, thank it's, you. It's been great, and this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a joint production between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Sarah Jacob. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. Theme music composed and performed by yours truly. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.